This morning, does anybody here know about trials? Is anybody entertained by trials? Not the kind that we all go through. I'm talking about the kind that we see where people are placed on a stand and they must defend themselves. Folks most certainly are entertained by trials. I mean, if you flip on daytime television, which I know most of you probably don't, but there's all these different judges and different trials that you can watch, and it's kind of an entertainment for people now. Some trials garner the attention of certain groups of people. Some garner the attention of a nation. Some garner the attention of the entire world. The most significant trial I can remember from, from, uh, from my childhood was the trial of O.J. Simpson. It was like everybody was glued to the TV thinking about that trial. I remember the day and time in which the jury's decision was, was reached and they announced it on national television. I was sitting in a civics and free enterprise class at Independence High School and, uh, and we were watching it. And to hear the, the, the people cheering and hollering when he was not guilty, it was, it was, an, interesting, it was an interesting time. It was entertaining, really. Um, I think most, the most interesting thing about trials is, is not the verdict. I think the most interesting thing is when they swear people in. I know that may sound boring to you, but if you think about it, anyone testifying has to be sworn in. They, they affirm that they will tell the truth. They can swear either on a holy book or just simply affirm that they'll tell the truth. But most historically, we've seen people stand up there with their hand on a Bible and say, will you tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth? So help you God, right? I always thought that was interesting that that people would stand up there and swear on the Bible and so help me God. And this morning we'll be in the book of Malachi. I want to invite you to turn there to, to Malachi chapter 2, the end, of verse, the end of chapter 2 all the way into chapter 3. And what we'll see is that the Israelites, the Israelites have put someone on trial. And we've actually witnessed that, that already throughout the book of Malachi. They begin to question and ask questions of a certain person. And that person they're asking these questions of is God. It appears that they believe that God has been wrong. And this is not non-typical of our world. People put God on trial all the time. They question his truth and his actions. And this morning, God doesn't need to defend himself. He, he doesn't need us to defend him. We're, we're called in, in Second Peter or First Peter to give a defense for the hope that we have in us. And that's different, though, from trying to defend God for his actions or what people perceive as his non-actions. And the Israelites, and what many of us do, is we accuse God, and we question God's motives, we question his actions, we question his non-actions. And I'm not too concerned about those outside who are dead set against God being wrong and, and accuse him of certain things. What we're seeing is God's own people in the book of Malachi putting him on trial. And God has a reaction to that. Let's read Malachi chapter 2, starting in verse 17. And we'll read through verse 12 of chapter 3. Malachi 2, 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By, by saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. 
Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in the former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against the, those who bear false witness, against those who oppress the hired workers in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? You are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it may not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the fields shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then... All nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Lord, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Teach us now in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to, to, to think with me about verse 17, and then we're going to, this is a, the second introduction to the sermon that we see in chapter 3. But think about verse 17 with me for a minute. They are, they are asking God, they have wearied the Lord, and they're wearying him by asking him all these questions. And their main question is, where is the God of justice? The people of Israel were tired of seeing the people around them prosper. They, they were seeing evil people being blessed, even among themselves. And Israel didn't think this was fair. Where is our prosperity? Where is, where is our blessing? And Israel didn't appear to enjoy what God was giving them. And they cried out, where is the God of justice? The Israelites needed to be reminded of something, that, that justice is not served in their way. Justice is not served in their timing. And I would remind us that the God of justice, where is he? He's here. He's here in Malachi. He's here in the Word of God. He's here in Jesus Christ. He's here in truth. He's in the church. He's in you who believe G Jesus the God of justice is here with us now. And when we struggle with God's justice, it's not because he has been absent. It's because we have a misunderstanding. And our thinking that God serves justice in our way or in our time has clouded our view of who God really is. But God serves justice in his way and in his time. And in our passage this morning, God is not interested in providing an explanation for why he, as they perceived, showered blessings on sinners and not on them. God does, however, take this opportunity to present to us or to, to actually pinpoint the hypocrisy of his people and reminds the people of his own character. The Israelites, they pointed the finger at God when they should have been pointing the finger at themselves, should have been looking inwardly. And so by provoking an interrogation of God, the people have opened a door for God to critique their lives and their lifestyles. But God's critique and judgment and his justice doesn't come without hope for those who believe. And so what I hope we'll see in chapter 3 is that God, the God who is just 
is the one who we don't need to fear his judgment, but we should reflect his promises and obedience and generosity. The first thing I want you to see is that a just God promises renewal. Look at it with me in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. In verses 1 through 4, we see a promise of renewal in the book of Malachi. He begins with renewal and not wrath. They've asked, where is the God of justice? They've accused God. And the first thing he does is offer this promise of renewal. He could have started with wrath. With wrath, Surely he's going to talk about judgment in just a few minutes. But he begins with this promise. And that promise is the promise of the gospel. Look at it in verse 1 of chapter 3. Behold, I will send my messenger. I send my messenger. He'll prepare, prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus actually quotes this, this verse in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10. He's referring to that first messenger. I send my messenger. He'll prepare the way. Who's he referring to? John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the one who prepared. And Jesus tells us that's exactly what Malachi was talking about. He is the one who prepares the way. Which means that the Lord, this glorious messenger of the covenant mentioned in Malachi 3, who will return suddenly to his temple, the one who Malachi's original readers would have immediately identified as Yahweh himself, the God of the covenant, the one is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Malachi is prophesying about the coming of Jesus Christ. In verse 2, we see that not all people will react the same way to his coming. Not everyone's going to be excited about it, particularly those who don't like fire and soap. Can I get an amen? He brings up fire and soap, the refiner's fire and the fuller's soap. These are things that purify, take away impurities, and things that cleanse and clean. Those who would prefer to be unclean and to be impure, for them his coming will not be a day where they enjoy it. It's not a day that they will welcome. But look at what he will do for the sons of Levi. We see that in verses 3 and 4. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. The, the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. He brings cleansing and renewal so that the broken mess of Judah's bankruptcy and the moral decline that we see in chapter 1 where they're offering impure sacrifices, those things would be renewed and cleansed. And the people of God will be restored and revived by the grace of Jesus Christ. This is good news for us. This is why, what Jesus came to do for his people, to cleanse them from unrighteousness. He came to deal with sin and to make sinners into saints. And what Israel should be doing is looking to the coming of Christ. You want justice? It's coming. He's coming. Jesus is coming. Look there. Look, look to him. That, that is always the first and best response when people want to know where God is and how he will deal with our sense of injustice. We need to point people, and we ourselves need to look to Jesus Christ. If you wonder what God's love looks like, look at the devotion of Christ to the holiness God requires. If you wonder if God is good, look at the gentleness and generosity of Jesus Christ. If you wonder how God is just, look at the cross where the justice of God 
is exacted on his son and full payment for your sin and my sin is made through the person and work of Jesus Christ. None who look to Christ and see him clearly in his perfect obedience, his loving sacrifice, none of those can continue to accuse him of not caring about beauty or truth or goodness or righteousness as the people of Malachi's day were doing. Look at Jesus. Malachi even says it. Look to the one who is to come. The great answer of God to the sin of the world is his son, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord, in whom God has purchased renewal, cleansing, and transformation. This is where God begins. Even before pointing to judgment, even before pointing out their sin, he promises renewal and hope. So, That's the first thing I want us to see. A a just God promises renewal, but a just God also promises judgment. A just God promises judgment. Look at verse 5 with me. It says, Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages and the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner. And do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. The God who came in Christ in mercy at the cross will come again one day soon in Christ in judgment. And those who have said, where is the God of justice? They will know on that day that they had all along been given opportunity to make peace with the God of judgment through Jesus Christ. Then and now, God is being patient. How do we know God's being patient? You're still breathing, aren't you? We're still here, aren't we? Still proclaiming the gospel, aren't we? Listen to what 2 Peter 3, 9 says. It says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should, come, should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. There is a day of judgment coming. Why is not God why is God not come yet? It's it's not because of moral indifference. No, it's his forbearance, it's his patience. He's been giving us opportunity all this time for repentance. Be sure that judgment is coming. The God of justice will appear and accounts will be settled on that day and his judgment will be swift. Do you see it there in verse 5? It'll be swift. There'll be no time to turn at that point it'll be swift and whatever you may think or you may know or see or hear now malachi is saying to us flee from the wrath to come flee to the only safe refuge the lord jesus christ the messenger of the covenant who came to his temple who gave himself for sinners to renew and to provide pardon flee to jesus so we've seen that a a just god promises renewal he also promises judgment But I want you to find this right in the middle of this passage. He also promises immutability. Now, I know I said earlier we don't typically use big words to talk about the gospel, but we're mature in here. Let's talk about immutability. Amen? That's a word we all use every day as we're walking along the path. This word simply means that, that God does not change. It's a theological word. It's important. There is no shifting of shadows with God. He is constant. He is a rock for us. He does not change. This isn't 
some bait and switch show, some smoke and mirrors thing that God is trying to put on where he acts one way at sometimes and sometimes he acts another. No, God is consistent. He is immutable. He never changes. Look at verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. See, by previously asking where is the God of justice, the people are suggesting that God has changed, that he no longer cares about evil. He no longer cares about that promise of of blessing those who who love him and cursing those who don't. He he no longer uh, cares about that. He's abdicated his previous cares and concerns. But they're missing it completely. They're missing it completely like we often do. It's not that God no longer cares. The fact that the people of Israel had not been consumed in the wrath of God due to their faithlessness, their presenting of, of abominable sacrifices, their, their many provocations to God, this is not evidence of God's moral indifference or that he's changed. Rather, this is evidence that God is unchanging. He made a promise that he would not destroy them completely. So they're saying, you've changed, God. And he's like, man, if I changed, I'd have probably taken you all out a long time ago. But I don't change. When I say I'm going to do something, I do it. I'm immutable. I don't change. He isn't abrupt. He isn't given to abrupt changes. He, he doesn't have mood swings or fits of rage and anger. He never loses his patience with us. He never gets bored with us. He is constant and sure. He's not like us. I don't think everybody can say amen to that find ourselves changing all the time don't we i mean listen we all got issues amen one minute we could be standing up here with our hands held high the next minute looking down what are you doing you know we just we just we can we can be so flighty we shift we change god's not like that god's immutable he never changes It's not that he no longer cares. He made a promise. He's keeping it. Listen, the doctrine of God's immutability should be such a refuge for us. It should be such a a, a refuge for us to cling to. There is stability in God that makes him alone a safe hiding place with whom we can take refuge. So when times are tough, when the other types of trials come, when your circumstances overwhelm you, when those closest to you betray you, when the world around you is filled with moral decline and you feel the pressure of cultural conformity, then is when you must run to the rock who doesn't change. Cling to the immutable God. Say to him, thou changest not. Thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be great is thy faithfulness. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a God. He's a just God of renewal, of judgment, of immutability. And he's also a just God who promises acceptance. He promises acceptance. Look at verse 7 with me. Listen to what he tells this people who have, who have really rebelled against him, who have done nothing but question him. Look at the compassion. He says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? When I think of someone returning in the Bible, someone who walked in a way contrary to God 
and, and yet came back. I'm reminded of Luke 15, the prodigal son, probably the, the greatest story of return that you'll read through the Scriptures. Do you remember that he, he left his father and squandered his inheritance? And he's ashamed to come back to his father. He's ashamed to come back. He, he left and he's, he's lost everything. And sometimes when we become aware of our, our sin, we are overcome with shame, we feel kind of like that prodigal. How could I, how could I return? And when, when he had sunk all the way down into the gutter, both morally and economically, Jesus says he came to himself and resolved to return home, but he was ashamed. He believes there's no possibility of acceptance with the Father. Listen to Luke 15, 18. I will arise and go to my Father. I will say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. That's the best he can hope for, he thinks. But Jesus said, Jesus said, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. We serve a God who promises acceptance. He says to the people in Malachi's day, if you return to me, I will return to you. I'm not going to throw you out. I'm not going to break the covenant that I've made with you. Some of, some of you, some of us have, have wandered to a far country. The cry this morning is come home. Come back to the Father. Return. God our Father delights to welcome, to accept, and to receive home those who return to him. Come home, return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And if you think you've gone too far this morning, if you think that you are too far gone, you're in a really good place right now. You're in a good place to turn, to return, to come back to God. He promises that he will accept. Lastly, he promises generosity. We see that God promises generosity Look with me at verses 8 through 12. This is kind of an answer to that last phrase in verse 7. How shall we return? And God asks in verse 8, will you rob me? And he says, you are robbing me. And they're like, how have we robbed you? What are, what are we stealing from you, God? And he answers, in your tithes and contributions. God goes right to, to a, a big problem that they're having. In, in chapter 1, they were offering lame sacrifices now he confronts their their lack of care for god's priests for his for their care of the temple you see the the tithes and contributions were used and they were part of the mosaic law where they were commanded to bring them uh, so that they could provide financial support for the for the temple and for the priests and the levites the services in the temple the festivals in the temple the poor and the needy in the community verse Verse 9 tells us that there are consequences to them not obeying this. He says, you are cursed with a curse. When you don't give God what's his, it says you're cursed with a curse. It's Malachi, not me, amen? All right, and notice the end of verse 9. This is not just the priests. He, before, it it's, it's almost seems like it's directed at the priests, but here it says, the whole nation of you, you've all forsa- forsaken me. You've all stopped doing what I've commanded you to do. And by withholding tithes, they were, they were robbing the temple. They were robbing the poor and the needy. In essence, they were robbing God. And God had 
before questioning the Israelites for their poor sacrifices, their, their lack of worship, their idolatry, and their faithlessness. And now he pinpoints the heart of the problem, which is not the giving necessarily. It's the problem of their hearts. You see, the problem is not what the people possessed, but the problem was what they did with their possessions. They weren't returning to God what they were called to give to God. Look at verse 10. It says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse. They were to bring a full tithe. Now, obviously, the priests and Levites are still getting along. They're still making sacrifices. So it's not like they didn't have anything. But, but the idea was there to, there to be an overflow. There to be stored up foods in these storehouses so that at any time, the priests would never have to worry about what happens in the temple. They could, they could go on celebrating. They could go on teaching. And they can go on making the sacrifices. In chapter 1, we, we see that they were required to, to, to bring the, the full tithe. I mean, I'm sorry, in, chapter, in verse 10, they were to bring the full tithe. But they were not bringing what was required. They weren't giving their best. They were giving what was left over. In chapter 1, God required the best animals, spotless, unblemished, and they were bringing blind, even stolen animals. They didn't want to spend their own money for the sacrifice and here they're not bringing what is required. Just like the, the animals they were not bringing was a hard issue, this also is a hard issue. They were commanded to give a tithe, and they were not obedient to that command. A question for us this morning is how do we respond to that? How, how do we respond to this Old Testament idea of tithing? First, let me start by saying that there are varying opinions on the issue of tithing and giving to the church. I'll give you a couple of those opinions and ideas and then discuss some guiding principles for how we're to give to the church today. First, the word tithe literally in verse 8 and, and 9, it literally means, 8 and 10, it literally means tenth. It means a tenth, right? When the land was divided, the promised land was given to the different tribes, there was one tribe who was left out of the land giving out. It was the Levites. Because they inherited not land, they inherited the priesthood. And the idea was that all the other tribes would collect tithes and offerings to give to the priesthood, to give to the Levites, so that they could take care of the temple and the sacrifices and care for those types of things. They were provided for through the tithes and contributions. You can read this in Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We read it in Leviticus last, uh, over the last month or so. Or last, I guess, five or six months. We've been reading in Leviticus a long time. The people were expected to give a tenth of their yield, their crops, their livelihood. They were, there were other contributions as well. Israelites were expected to contribute towards festivals and feasts as well as sacrifices in the temple. I've actually heard estimates from theologians that a tithe, uh, that, that what they were supposed to give, tithes and contributions, equaled more like 20 to 25%. One guy really nails it. He says 23%. I don't know if that really matters. But the reality was they were given much more than just a, a tithe of the crops. They were given to these different festivals and everything as well. This was part of the law for the people. Now, the two prominent views in our day speak to the question of whether or not we are still required in the New Testament or, or in the New Covenant to give a tithe, and if that tithe really is 10% or is it more. One view says, yes, we're still required to give a tithe. They, they give this reason. Because the first time that we see tithing is actually before the Mosaic law. We see that Abraham, in Genesis 14, gave a tithe to Melchizedek, king of Salem, the priest of the Most High God. He was supporting the priest. He was giving his tithe. We see in Genesis 28, Jacob promises after he has a, a match there with God that he'll give a full tenth to all that God gave him. So this view 
sees the idea of the tenth predating the Mosaic law and going all the way back to Abraham. And even further, as we see in the first family, they were making offerings and sacrifices to God. Cain and Abel, they're bringing an offering to the Lord, though nothing there is mentioned about a tenth. Now, they also speak to this, that Jesus confirms the tithe in Matthew 23, 3, 23, 23, and in Luke eleven forty two, where he says, Woe to the Pharisees, because they've actually done more. They're tithing off of their herb gardens, right? They're giving mint and all this kind of stuff. But they're neglecting justice and mercy. And Jesus says, you should have done one without neglecting the other. So they see Jesus as confirming the tithe from this passage. There's a second view, and that view is that we're not required as believers to tithe as the Old Testament commanded. Reason being is that we are no longer under the Mosaic Covenant. And also the examples of Abraham and Jacob are not normative patterns and are seen as not commands. Also, there's no longer priests and Levites in the New Covenant. There's no longer the temple to be cared for. And if tithing is required today, then we should give more than 10% because that's what was commanded by the Mosaic Law. They also say that when Jesus affirmed the tithe, it was before the dawn of the New Covenant. It was before his death, resurrection. Also, nowhere in the New Testament is tithing mentioned when commands are given about giving generously. Let me say something about these two views. If we do not agree on tithing, we can still enjoy fellowship together. Amen? It doesn't mean you are or are not a Christian if you don't agree on this matter. There's a lot of matters like that. There's a lot that aren't. Who Jesus is, what he did, non-negotiable. Things like tithing, important, but they're not non-negotiables. There is, there is some disagreement among Christians. That's okay. However, there are, there are some clear teachings and some clear um, perspectives of this that, that, that we're to hold. Here are some principles to live by when it comes to giving to the church. Number one, we're commanded to support those who preach the gospel. Now, that sounds pretty biased because I'm up here preaching the gospel. Amen. But listen to the word of God, Luke 10, 7. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wage. This is when Jesus had sent them out. He said the laborer deserves his wage. They were to be provided for. Best, best place is 1 Corinthians 9. If you have sown spiritual things among you, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So, the first principle is that we're commanded to support those who preach the gospel. The second principle is, while we enjoy the good things that God gives us, we're also called to be generous with what we have. We're to be generous with what God has given us. Listen to 1 Timothy 6. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now, most of us, when we read that, we start thinking about something. We start thinking about rich people. We start thinking about all these people who got all this wealth, and we're like, yeah, yeah, you need to listen to that. He's talking about you. He's not talking about the large sums of people who live on less than $2 a day or whatever it is. 
He's talking about those who are here this morning, sitting in a comfortable chair, who drove here in a luxury vehicle, even it might not be as luxury as somebody else's. It's still nice, right? You got here this morning, you got clothes on, you got shoes on your feet. Most of you are wearing shoes. I see some of you took them off. That's all right. Get comfortable. Amen. But listen, we've been blessed. You are rich compared to the world standards. You got more than most people have ever had in the history of the world. So when you read something like this, be generous and, and store up treasures in heaven, setting a foundation for the future is talking about you. That's a principle. Those who have been given much, of much is required. The third principle is this. We should be ready to give and not give under compulsion, but planned, purposeful, and proportional. Follow me with this for a minute. 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. If you give this morning because I got up here and pleaded with you and made you feel guilty and sorry for yourself, and you give, that's not cheerful giving. You should decide in your heart what to give and give as God gives you wisdom. For God loves a cheerful giver. And when you give it, you ought to smile. You ought to laugh a little bit and say, man... Look what I get to do. I get to return to God something that's his. So we should be ready. 1 Corinthians 16, 2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside. Do you see that? It's, it's somewhat planned and purposeful here. Set it aside as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. That's Paul again. 2 Corinthians 8. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. There's proportional. So it's planned, it's, it's purposeful, it's proportional. We see all those truths, those, those principles in the New Testament. It appears that this was decided in the heart and was somewhat systematic and planned giving for a purpose to provide for those who are proclaiming the gospel. And it was proportional to what they had. Those who, who had little weren't expected to give as much as those who had more. It was proportional to what you made. That's pretty consistent with how we give. Pretty consistent with most tax structures in the world. But this is not a tax. Don't, let's don't go there. Amen? All right. Fourth principle. Contributions are to be used for the, for the gospel proclamation. It, the, the, the offerings in the New Testament weren't just for preachers to preach. There were other reasons to give them, and that was for things like missionaries. Paul was going to collect money to spread to missionaries so that the gospel might be proclaimed all over the place. Uh, giving is, is no longer focused on a temple, but on the ministry of the local church. On the ministry of the local church. Now, I want you to know what happens to your contribution when you give to the vine. Either you text it, you email it put it in one of these boxes on the way out. What happens to that money? I want you to know a little bit about what happens to it. It goes to the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Andy and I are both bivocational pastors. We, are, we both work additional jobs, uh, and we've done that from the beginning. For the first two years, almost two years, uh, we didn't take a salary from the contributions. We stored it up. Uh, this allowed us to, to use the funds that were given by us and by others to establish this church that we're sitting in right now to, to secure this location where, where uh, this building was, was given to us. Debt-free, nobody, we didn't owe a dime on it when it came to us, but it was somewhat in disrepair. We've spent between sixty dollars and $80,000 on a new roof on paint, lipstick, and rouge to bring this building, this, this room up to the 21st century. Amen. How many of you remember what color it was when we first got here? And you know what? We could still praise God on pink carpet, but God's given us, he's blessed us. We put gray carpet in there. Amen. You can praise God on gray carpet. And we're not sitting in pews, we're sitting in chairs. That's all right. Amen. It's all right to use God's resources to make us uh, comfortable as well. So that's good. We, we're doing that. 
So we, we, we now both do receive uh, salaries proportional to the, the preaching of the gospel and teaching of the gospel here. The rest of the contributions are used for additional staff, for resources, for hospitality, for, for benevolence, and for outside ministries. We, we give to global missions through the cooperative program. And we also give to two missionary families, the Iglesias family in Spain, the Essex family in El Salvador. And there is, there is ongoing utilities and upkeep of this building. We've got seven air conditions here. So far we've replaced four. I think we've got three to go, and they'll all be new. Amen. All right. The priority, however, is on gospel proclamation. We want to use the majority of our funds, the significant portion of our budget, to support the preaching and teaching here at the church and around the world. That's why we support the pastors and we support missionaries all over the world. That's a a principle throughout Scripture, to support the church. The, The last thing is this. All of it belongs to God. Not just the tenth. 100% belongs to God. Your whole paycheck is God's. And just as God didn't need the sacrifices of the people, even said in chapter 2 he would rather someone shut the door than them to offer incense in vain on his altar, he doesn't need our money. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. At any point he could kill one, sell it, and use that money for whatever he wants. Amen? He doesn't need our money. God doesn't need you to give. Listen, folks, you need you to give. This is about you and about your heart. It's not about me. I don't need your money either. Andy doesn't need your money either. The missionaries don't need your money. If we don't supply it here at the vine, God's going to provide. It's about our hearts. Wealth can so easily become an idol, leading us to abandon Christ. For Israel and for us, this is, a, this is a hard issue. We should be generous with what God has given us because God has been generous to us. And since God is to be our treasure, believers are to give generously and freely. For many in our culture, this will mean giving more than 10%. Most, well, I've already, I've already covered that. We're not poor, amen? We're not poor. The Levites, even the Levites tithed on the tithe that was given to them. One thing's for sure, we may not always agree on how to give, who to give, and what to give, but everybody gave. Give something. Andy and I have discussed this in the past, and we, we want to commend those who give for their generosity. And we say to those who don't give, don't give nothing. Don't, don't give zero, not, not for us. Give something. And give it from your heart because it's a hard issue. Give it cheerfully. Make a plan to set something aside to give. Give first. Let it be the first thing you pay out of your resources. This is the the idea of the first fruits in the Old Testament. I'm not saying we're bound by that, but I'm just saying if you don't give out of the the first out of your paycheck by the end of the week, there ain't nothing going to be there for most of us. Do you think God won't provide for you? Have you stretched yourself so thin that you can't give? I know that happens. If that's happened, that's okay. But fix it. Make a plan to give. Start somewhere. Give something. This morning, 
If you're visiting with us, you're like, man, they always preach on giving. We don't. We don't talk a lot about money. But listen, money talks a lot about us. Do you want to you see the heart of someone? You want to determine where a person's heart is? You evaluate their bank account statement. You'll see. What's encouraged is planned, pers- pers- purposeful, and even sacrificial giving. This is all encouraged in Scripture. But what does this have to do with God being generous? Amen? What does it have to do with God being generous? Remember, it all belongs to God. He has given you everything. He has given you everything. 100% of this is from God. And he told the Israelites this was a place to test him. Do you see that in the text? The second half of verse 10, 10 says, Test me in this if you, if, if, and see if I won't pour out a blessing on you. Your crops will flourish. Nothing's going to devour them. They were wondering where the God of justice was, wondering why God was, was blessing others around them, around them and not them, yet they couldn't see that it was their sin that was hindering them from God blessing them in their life. God wanted to bless them. He was, he was ready to bless them. But God's people can't believe that he will bless them when they're, when, when they're walking in disobedience. We, we can't believe that. We can't believe that God's just going to bless us and we live however we want to live. They were bringing lame sacrifices, and now they're withholding their offerings. Now, God will continue to supply their need and in abundance in his promise, and he says, return to me. And one of the ways they need to return to him is by bringing the right sacrifices, as mentioned in chapter 1, and by bringing the full tithe into the storehouse. You see, the just God is a God of renewal and judgment and immutability and acceptance, and he's a God of generosity. God has been so good to us. And he's proved this over and over again. And God answers the question, where is the God of justice? And he answers it by telling them who he is. I've not changed. I'm here, ready to receive you if you'll return. And we, when we believe in a God, we believe in who God is, and we trust his sovereign ways, we won't be asking where is the God of justice. God is not on trial this morning. We are. We're on trial this morning, and the question we ought to be asking is not, where is the God of justice? Rather, we should be saying, we deserve worse than we have. We should be pleading for mercy from God. Which of you has been perfect in any of these areas like God? Which of you has been fair and generous all the time? Which of you have have been consistent in your walk with God? You've never changed. You've always done right. If we were on trial this morning... The evidence would be stacked up against us. Amen? We have sinned. We have not kept the covenant. We have been faithless. The sentence for us should be death. Listen to Romans 6.23. The wages of our sin is death. Man, don't you, aren't you glad that verse doesn't stop there? Listen to the rest of verse 23. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Aren't you glad that we don't have to read about judgment and correction without knowing that there's hope? In Jesus Christ, for those who believe in the Lord this morning, trust in his finished work on the cross to pay for your sins, to atone for your sins. You are are not locked up. This morning, you are free. Sure, this world has hard times. Bad things happen, even happen to what we consider good people. Yet those who trust in the Lord can say, the Lord is given, the Lord is taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
We can say, though he slay me, I will hope in him. We can say with Paul, whatever gain I had, I have now counted as loss for the sake of Christ. We can say with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And just as the Israelites were to trust in God to fulfill his promises of hope, we are to trust in that fulfilled promise. Jesus has come, and we have been redeemed if we've trusted in Jesus Christ. And we have been commissioned and called. We, we sort of see that in verse 12 of Malachi. It says, Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord. All along, God is saying, Man, the nations around you, they're watching, they're seeing what's going on here, and they're going to praise me. They're going to praise me for my great works, and we have an opportunity to be a part of that. Trust in Jesus and know the grace of God. Know the blessings of God. Live in the land of delight. Be obedient and wait. Wait. We've received the promise that he has come to give us life, but we also wait for him to come back. We wait for his return when he will finish what he started, when he will make all things right, and when we will see a new heavens and a new earth, and we'll dwell with him in the house of the Lord forever. So as we're here, we give generously, we love sacrificially, we honor God for who he is, and we wait. We wait for Christ's return, or we'll celebrate together in a new heaven and a new earth. Let's pray. Father, this morning we give you great praise. You don't have to defend yourself. You've already told us who you are, and your character is flawless. This morning we worship you as the immutable God, the God who never changes. And we praise you as the one who has delivered us from our sin and given us new life. And I pray, God, that our lives would reflect that. We would reflect lives that have been generously given much. God, that we would give our lives back to you. God, remind us that our sacrifices, not made with human hands, our sacrifices, our lives, God living sacrifices. It's our spiritual act of worship. Help us to worship you with our whole being, with our lives, with our time, with our money, with everything, God. You are worthy of that worship. May we live in the land of delight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This morning, you